Hey, Romans chapter 10. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10 today. We're going to look at the first four verses. So go ahead and find your space there. Uh, Romans 10, first four verses. While you're finding your your place, uh, let me just celebrate two things really quick. Number one, last week we had Orphan Sunday and we asked you to respond and uh, in a couple of ways. One, to go and be a part of the ministry fair that we had available. Uh, so many of you did that. You went by, checked out the booths, and I uh, got some really cool information. And it's been neat to hear some of the stories around that. The second thing we talked about is uh, providing Christmas for several foster families. So we threw up a QR code uh, as an Amazon wish list uh, for these families. And, and man, I'm thrilled to tell you today that the entirety of that wish list has been satisfied. So we just praise God for that. Yeah, good stuff. And then I also wanna celebrate this, Pastor Peter. Many of you know Pastor Peter. Uh, if you don't know him, if you come into this door uh, on Sunday mornings, you've seen him. He's there greeting you uh, with a smile and he remembers your names. He's just, he's incredible. Uh, Pastor Peter has been working on his PhD for uh, a few years now. And man, I'm so proud of him. I'm proud to say this. On Thursday, he successfully defended his dissertation. And so, yes, he'll be graduating. He is now Dr. Peter Doubleman. So when you, when you walk out today, you can call him doctor and just give him a fist bump. That would be amazing. Um, number one, he doesn't like to be called doctor. So please call him that and then give him a fist bump. So that'd be awesome. So we celebrate those things. Hey, listen, before we read our text, let me just say Romans 10 is a, a very important parallel chapter with Romans 9. As you know, Romans 9 was heavy on God's sovereignty and, you know, his providence and how he's in control. If we do not read Romans 10, we don't understand rightly the heart and the character of God in full because what we see happening in Romans 10 is we're seeing that we are called to actively participate in God's plan for the world. And so we're, we're, we're looking at what God's doing in our midst and we're saying as we read this text that man, God's called us to actively participate. If you only read Romans 9, you could conclude that, well, I just need to sit down. God's in control of everything. I don't have to do anything. But then you have to read all of it because as we look at Romans 10, we say, no man, we've got, we, we've got to be active in this world that we're in so that we can share Christ with the world around us. So let's look at Romans 10. If you're willing and able, please stand in honor of reading the word of God. Romans 10, starting in verse one. If you're there, we say amen. amen. It says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's unbelieving Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Final verse for today, verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. May God bless the reading and the proclamation of his word today. You may be seated. Paul says here in verse one, he says, my heart's desire and my prayer is that they may be saved. It's very important to see Paul's heart's desire on full display here. You see, Paul is not some cold, stoic theologian. Now, Paul, man, yes, he's uber intellectual, and yes, he's an 
an astute theologian, but man, Paul also has a zeal and a passion to share the good news of Jesus with those who know not Christ. His heart is on his sleeve. Stephen Lawson puts it this way. He says, you know, Paul has what is known as a felt religion. And you and I need to have a felt religion as well. What does this mean? It's an affectionate religion. You and I need to know what it is to have our heart filled with great affection for God, great affection for other like-minded believers, and great affection for those who do not know Christ. And that's exactly what Paul has been expressing through Romans and what he's expressing right now in Romans chapter 10. A good pause here for us, I suppose, is to ask ourselves a question, man. Do we today, where we sit, do we have a heart for the lost? Do we care about the scores of people around the world who have never heard the gospel? What about your neighbor? What about your coworkers? What about your friends who know not Jesus? Would you pray as Paul does for unbelieving Israel, that God would give them the ability to respond in faith to the gospel's call. Would you pray that they may be saved? You know, this past week, we spent some time at the North Carolina Baptist Convention, and there were a couple of things that happened there that were really incredible. One was the commissioning service that we had on Monday night for all of those who are being sent from North Carolina to the uttermost parts of the world to share the gospel with people who need the gospel and to see these brothers and sisters fill the stage and to hear their stories of how God has called them to go is so, uh, so compelling. And I'm grateful for their zeal and I'm grateful for their passion to reach the lost. Uh, the second thing that happened was we celebrated the Baptist Children's Home and the work, the amazing work that so many are doing, thinking about the house parents and the, the orphans that are being cared for and loved and taught about Jesus. They brought them on the stage and uh, there was about 150 of them that they brought on the stage and then they shared some of the stories on the screen. And I was sitting in the pew just a mess thinking about how God is doing this mighty Work. You see, this type of faith is very much felt. It's very much affectionate, man. It's something that we can sense and know and feel. I would say this way. Don't miss out on the simplicity of the gospel's call here. Sometimes we can get so heady that we forget that we are to passionately pray for others and to share the gospel with others and to serve passionately others in the name of Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon frames it. He says, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word. For salvation is the one thing we are to live for. And I can't think of a better example of one who is faithfully expositing the word of God week after week, 
one who dove into the trenches of the text, one who got into the uh, even nuanced portions, portions of the word of God. I can't think of a better one than Charles Spurgeon. But what did he extract from the word in all of his studies? He extracted the reality that I just quoted from him that I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word. As he reads the word, he sees that this is our call. It's to go to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, our ends of the earth, and to share the good news of Christ. Paul has this passionate heart's desire that he's putting on display for unbelieving Israel. Now, he does not rejoice, as we see in the latter part of Romans chapter 9, that they have stumbled on the stumbling stone. He has a heart's desire that is translated, hear this, into concrete action. Paul does not just verbalize that, hey, I care. No, he puts that care to action by getting on his knees and saying, God, I pray that you would save them. God, I pray that they would come to know you. As I, I consider our strategy here as a church this year, we're talking about identifying three people, every believer in the room, identify three people this year that need to know Christ. And as you identify them, we're going through this blessed strategy and we're looking for ways to just build a relationship with them, to ultimately share the gospel with them. But the very first part of this blessed strategy, the B, is begin with prayer. So when you think about year three, I want to just charge you and challenge you to start by praying as Paul does for those who know not Christ. Here's a helpful side note for you. We do live in a world that is anti-gospel and we live in a nation that is increasingly anti-Christian. You know, as you faithfully live out your call in life, to honor Jesus, to know Jesus, to share Jesus, to serve others, you will likely be at a minimum verbally accosted. What you need to remember is the people who are aggravated with you, the people who are perhaps antagonizing you, uh, you are not the source of their frustration. How you respond to them in those moments is critical. The way you respond to them in those moments matters deeply. We can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul here. How? Well, Paul was one who got saved and he received Jesus as Savior. And now he's living as a missionary and he has a mission of life to share with others the glorious good news of the gospel well, unbelieving Israel rejected Jesus time and time again. And they could not understand why in the world Paul, who was once a perfect Jew and in the same vein of trying to halt the movement of Christ, why in the world is he now propagating this so-called gospel? He was rejected time and time again. He could have very easily said, you know what? 
I will write these people off. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to deal with them anymore. He could have responded with words that were hurtful and ugly. He could have done a lot of things. But what did Paul do? He chose not to be ugly towards them. Rather, he chose to pray for them. We need to make sure that we learn from Paul that we are not to be the stumbling block for others. You know, when people reject Christ and they are antagonistic towards you or they're aggravated with you, we don't need to respond in like form because we can become a stumbling block to them. No, we need to respond in the way that Paul does, still caring for them, still giving them truth and still praying for them. Our behavior towards opposition matters. So that is verse one. Here's verse number two. This is where many religious people are today, even sincere Christians. They find themselves in what Paul says, I've borne witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is important for us to unpack. You see, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge is probably a pretty close description, if not 100% right on, to how Paul operated prior to being Paul. You see, he was once named Saul. Saul, who was an unbeliever at the time, he was the one that held the coats of those who stoned Stephen as Stephen was trying to share the truth of of Jesus as Messiah who could redeem uh, his people from their sins. Paul was all, excuse me, Saul was all about uh, stopping the movement of Christ. He was one who was very, very, very zealous to stop the movement of Jesus. He was very zealous in his traditions, very zealous in his heritage, very zealous in his customs that identified a covenant people, and he ran towards that. And so this description of I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge he could relate to. Because it wasn't until he was on the road to Damascus when God got his attention. When God got his attention by showing him that he is persecuting the very one that came to save his soul. So he calls them out and he says, hey, I can relate to you. You have a lot of passion for God, but you don't understand, man. You don't have the knowledge that you need. You see the Jewish people here, they're doing a lot of cultural things that are representative of covenant people, but they've completely misjudged the truths of Jesus as Messiah. They have rejected him. They have stumbled here and they had a lot of great religion and a lot of great haste, but they found themselves chasing after the wind. This is likened to our day to cultural Christianity. My friend Dean and Sarah wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian. Here's a quote from that book. I think it captures this quite well. He says, the gospel is not church attendance. The gospel is not be sincere and a good person. The gospel is not theism. The gospel is not heritage. The gospel is not ethnicity. The gospel is not making Jesus your co-pilot or your lucky charm. What is he saying here? Well, Dean is saying that there's a mindset that places your security in your heritage or your security in your values or your rights of passage. And in doing so, you're worshiping this generic deity rather than the redemptive work of 
Jesus. Everything, brothers and sisters, begins with knowledge. Everything begins with truth. And until you know the truth, hear this, as lovingly as I can say it, you're aiming at nothing. You can be as passionate as you want to be, but until you know the truth, man, you're aiming at nothing. Until you know the truth, you're in darkness separated from Christ. And my fear is that there are many churches who are quite zealous, many churches that are quite passionate, but Jesus is not the center of what they are doing. And my prayer is this, God, help us if Christ is not the center of all that we do. God, help us to know that you are to be at the center of all that we do. So we don't want to zeal without knowledge because knowledge matters. And we need to know what we're aiming for. And in this instance, this knowledge is the truth of Jesus as Messiah. Verse 3, Paul continues here and he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You know, people cannot come to Jesus without the right information about the gospel, but information alone is not enough. We must by faith trust in Jesus and by faith trust that he imputes his righteousness to us. You see, the Jews sought to establish their own righteousness. They sought to make themselves right with God by doing right and by attempting to fulfill the law. But what do we learn already in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we learned that none is righteous, no, not one. You see, the law makes us aware that we are guilty sinners, but it doesn't make us not guilty. The law cannot do that work. The law is not capable of making us not guilty. The problem here with the Jews that Paul is speaking to is they refused to look at themselves internally. They judged themselves based on everyone else. And as long as they looked better than other people, they felt pretty good about themselves. This is where we have to be careful. Because if we're not careful, we can find ourselves stumbling down the same road. We need to see our own brokenness and our own inability to be righteous within our own strength in order for us to experience the sweetness of Jesus and the righteousness that he grants through faith. So a couple of ways they were ignorant of this righteousness. Number one, they thought God graded on a curve. They were trying to put themselves based on others, not based on the holiness of God. So that was their comparison, was am I better than the person sitting next to me? And they would do everything they could to posture themselves externally to, to be that way. And Jesus called them, hey, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but ain't nothing but dead bones on the inside, right? So they were ignorant of that. But then secondly, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God that is provided through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Hear this, the truth remains. We cannot keep the law perfectly. And the Bible is clear. If you break one commandment, you've broken them all. You're guilty, headed to a real place called hell, separated from God. We can't keep it. We can't do enough good to keep it. That's true, man. But here's the good news. What God requires, God provides. So how do we walk in that obedience? How are we to stand before God as holy and righteous and pure? Here's how, by faith in Christ alone. 
So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. This is the book of Ephesians teaching us this. We know that we are walking by faith, imputed the righteousness of God. What Colossians says is when God sees us, he sees us covered with the precious blood of Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees that you're his if you're covered in the blood of Jesus. You see all the Old Testament parallels with that, which is pretty amazing to look at. But we praise the Lord for this reality that God provides what he requires. Romans 1.17 says it this way, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. Last verse for today, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, Jesus is the end of the law for those who believe. The law ends for the believer in the sense that our obedience to the law is no longer the basis for our relationship to God. So right now, if you're operating in that vein, you may think that you're doing enough, but you feel like that's the basis of your relationship with God. Well, that is the basis and you've been declared guilty. But now when you place your faith in Christ, that's no longer the basis of our relationship with God. It is is based on the finished work of Jesus. But the law has not come to an end in the sense of no longer reflecting God's standard of our lives or showing us our need for the Savior. The law has two purposes. One, it's a revealer. It shows our, our, our guilt It shows that we are broken, but the law is also given to us to show us how to walk and how to live, man. Thou shalt not lie, okay? That's how I'm supposed to live, man. I'm not to be an adulterer, not to even, I'm not not called to to be a murderer, right? So you you see the law of God. As we live our lives, we're operating from this viewpoint of as a believer, man, Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We still have to pursue the holiness of God in our life, man. Like you have a call in your life to honor Jesus in your life. And yes, there's an entire sect out there that will say, hey, it's all of grace. We can live however the hang we want to live. We can do whatever we want to do and we're good, right? Because it's all covered in the grace of God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you are saved, you need to understand that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but you also are called to be ye holy for I am holy. You're called to live for me, man. You're called to to honor Jesus in your life. So in what areas of your life have you justified? In what areas of your life have you said, you know what? Here's, here's this thing that I'm doing that I know is probably not pleasing to God, but it's covered in grace. So I'm going to justify it and sweep it under the rug. What areas of your life have you not submitted to the lordship of Jesus? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, and I'll just take pieces of this. But he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes in one of the the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Called to please God, man. We don't do this to try to earn salvation. You can't. You're not saved by works. But if you're saved, man, you're called to live a life that pleases God. So in what areas of your life are you walking in disobedience 
to the Lord. Here's a couple of takeaways for us. Number one, have a passionate desire to pray for those who don't know Jesus. And then pray that God will give you opportunities to share Christ with them, that they may be saved. Man, don't negate this privilege that we have to go before the Lord in prayer. We also need to have such a passion for Christ that we can't help but tell others. Hey, this is what Christ has done in me. I'm not doing this to try to make God happy with me or to try to earn God somehow. I'm sharing with you because Christ has saved me and changed me. And I can't help but share with you. We need such a passion that it's contagious. So God, give me that passion. Give me a contagious Christianity, God. Where people look at me and they know I truly believe what I say I believe. And I would also say this, man, earlier in Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Can I just say that clearly? Be unashamed, man. Paul is unashamed. He's been rejected. He's gone through the ringer in so many types of ways, even in his personal introspection, his personal reflection. He's struggled along the way. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I don't. Oh, wretched man that I am. Where's my hope? It's in Christ. In the midst of all of that, he stands proud with his head high, not boasting in self, but in the work of Christ in him. And he says, I'm unashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and the salvation. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, man. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. You know, I consider myself a, uh, myself a, a man's man. I do. I'm not trying to be just self-focused right here, but I, I do. You know, I like, I like to hunt. I like to fish. I'm not a real good fisherman, but I like to fish. I like to work out. Man, I, I, like, I like to work with my hands. That's important to me. I, I just get a lot of joy out of that. I uh, also like big, loud trucks, even though I don't have one right now. I like one, man. I used to have one until I moved to North Carolina, then couldn't have it anymore. And uh, it's like the old boy said, he said, when I, when I die, I'm going to be buried next to my four-wheel drive because I've never been in a hole that it couldn't get me out of. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> I, I like knowing I can get anywhere in that truck. But can I just say this to you? None of those things are what constitutes a man. The reason I consider myself a man's man, and this is imperfect, but I'm unashamed to tell you today, I love Jesus, man. He's changed my life. And knowing Jesus has changed me to want to be a better husband to want to be a better daddy. You'll like this one. Want to be a better pastor. Want to be a better neighbor, a better friend. I got a lot of growing to do. But it's all about him. And I'm not ashamed of Jesus. We also need to ask ourselves today, am I a cultural Christian or am I all in with Jesus? man? Am I, am I just going through the motions because this is what we've always done or do I really know him? And then lastly, do you have some areas in your life that you've not submitted to Jesus? Do you have some areas of your life that you've kind of justified or dismissed away as okay? When in reality, God is saying, I want all of you, man. If your life were described as a mansion with many rooms, does Jesus have every room of your life? Does he have all of you. So Christian, however the Lord uses this message, you respond. Maybe God's stirring your affections to share the gospel more than you are. Maybe God is getting your attention in some areas of your life that are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Maybe you're trying to walk in a righteousness that you can conjure on your own by way of cultural Christianity instead of trusting in the imputed righteousness of Christ that has been granted to you. 
As 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he being Jesus who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in heaven. He didn't die for his sin. He died for mine and for yours. And he's given us his righteousness. So walk in that. I don't know how this message hits you today, but respond to the Lord, however it does. I would say this to you in the room, if you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus, and today, man, God is just stirring you. Today, God is doing something in you, and you're saying today, man, I need to be saved. I praise God for that. We had two services before that, and there's scores of people in those services that are praying for you and have been praying for you that you may come to faith in Christ. And I pray today that you would respond and trusting in Jesus. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you trust him as Savior today? And then tell somebody about it. I would love to hear about it. We have others that would as well. Tell somebody about the decision you're making to give your life to Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to serve you and to know you. God, you truly are so, so good to us. And I pray as we sing this last song, we sing it with a lot of passion and a lot of zeal with the knowledge that you are worthy of it all, that it's all because of you that we have life and that we have redemption and that we have hope. And we pray this in the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.